this uh, discourse is um, not very long and it's um, about two kinds of thinking so I thought it would be quite appropriate for our thinkers. In Pali that's called Dveda Vitaka Sutta now or Dveda Vitaka Vitaka Vichara Vitaka is the initial application to the meditation in the any meditation but it also means also means thinking so and Dveda is two kinds so it's two kinds of it can be on one hand it can be the initial application to that which is profitable and on the other hand it can be the discursiveness Vitaka is the um, has both meanings now when it refers to meditation always has the one and um, it's also interesting because the Buddha talks about the time before he was enlightened so it's quite applicable to ordinary people like ourselves before we are enlightened and uh, for everybody who thinks and that's everybody thus have I heard on one occasion the blessed one was living at Savati in Jeta's Grove Anatopindika's Park and there he addressed the monks thus Bhikkhus Venerable Sir they replied and the Blessed One said this, Because before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened Bodhisattva, it occurred to me, suppose that I divide my thinking into two classes. That's quite an interesting idea, isn't it? And then I set on one side, thinking with sensual desires, thinking with ill will, thinking with cruelty, and I sat on the other side, thinking with renunciation, with non-ill will, loving kindness, and thinking with non-cruelty, which is compassion. Now the word bhikkhu is just the Pali word for the word monk. And uh, in the um, suttas it's always bhikkhus. I, up to now I've always said monks or people, but it's um, bhikkhus are monks an unenlightened bodhisattva now a bodhisattva is uh, in Pali in Sanskrit it's bodhisattva it's quite a common word bodhi is the word for enlightenment and sattva is a word for purity so and bodhisattva is unenlightened but it is a person who is bent on enlightenment now in the Theravadan suttas and this the word bodhisattva is n- never used for anyone it's never mentioned except for the time before the Buddha was enlightened about him but in, in, as a matter of fact it does mean anyone who is bent on enlightenment it's an unenlightened bodhisattva and uh, it is a, it's not what is sometimes said to be someone who has um, 
compassion for everybody or that sort of thing. Not at all. It's just an unenlightened person, but that has that intention. So the Buddha calls himself an unenlightened bodhisattva before his enlightenment. And you see now, sometimes people get the idea that because in order to meditate properly one can't think, that thinking is taboo. Well, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? It'd be like saying uh, breathing is taboo because the body breathes and the mind thinks. But what is taboo is the wrong kind of thinking. And this is what the Buddha is saying here. I mean, he, when he's talking about it, he is already the Buddha. He's saying, well, there, even when I was unenlightened, it occurred to me that there are two kinds of thinking. So I make one side, I put this kind, and on the other side I put that kind. So the one kind that I put on one side is the sensual desire, the ill will, and the cruelty. And on the other side, renunciation, loving kindness, and compassion. So first he made up his mind like that. Then, as I dwelt thus, diligent, ardent, and self-controlled, thinking with sensual desire arose in me. Now, it's nice to know that even the one who became a Buddha in that lifetime still had sensual desire, isn't it? So, he, but he's, he was um, living diligently. He was practicing diligently and ardently. So, he was totally um, given to the practice and he was self-controlled. But the thinking with sensual desire arose. And I understood thus. There is this thinking with sensual desire arisen in me. And that leads to my own affliction, to others' affliction, to the affliction of both. It obstructs understanding, promotes annoyance, and leads away from Nibbana. So what he's actually saying here is that how he was using mindfulness of the content of the mind, of the content of thinking, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, Dhammanupasana, the fourth foundation, mindfulness of content of the thought, and how he was able to see that as the, the unprofitable states, in this case the sensual desire, how he could see it, that it was only for his own um, well, affliction, it was for, his, for the way that it would, it would be for his own pain and for his own hurt. wouldn't do him any good, but it would also do other people no good. And it would, be, um, it would, would become annoying and would certainly lead him away from Nibbana. So he's actually telling exactly how one should react to any of the thoughts that are connected with the five hindrances. Although he's only mentioned three, but um, we can say this to the three, to the three uh, hindrances. How one should think when they arise. It's a very um, exact instruction. And when I considered that this leads to my own affliction, it subsided in me. 
And when I consider it, it leads to others' affliction, it subsided in me. When I consider it, it leads to the affliction of both, it subsided in me. And when I consider it, this obstructs understanding. The word understanding here is um, doubtlessly meant insight. It obstructs insight. Promotes annoyance and leads away from Nibbana, it subsided in me. And whenever thinking with sensual desire rose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, and did away with it. Now, the word understanding meaning insight, when there is sensual desire and one doesn't do anything about it, obviously there can be no insight. Because that's all one knows then, is the sensual desire. It's impossible to have any insight. But when one sees it as the Buddha is explaining here that it is um, an affliction, that it is annoying, it's obviously annoying because it leads away from Nibbana, and then it just disappears again. So he could abandon it, remove it, and did do away with it. When one sees that, it's of, that it doesn't bring any benefit to oneself, to others, that it cannot bring insight, that it must lead one away from that what one is actually looking for namely the removal of all dukkha then one can let it go and he says the same thing about ill will of course as I dwelt thus diligent, ardent and self-controlled thinking with ill will arose in me now a non-enlightened person, an arahant, non-arahant, um, still has ill will unless it's a non-returner. For a non-returner, it's a person who has had a past moment three times. Ill will can no longer arise. But for the first two past moments, namely the stream-enterer and the once-returner, ill will can still arise. For the stream-enterer, Ill will has not been touched. Has seen Nibbana once, Nibbana meaning seeing, having seen non-self once, but ill will is not touched. For the once returner, ill will has been um, diminished. And one could say it, um, it is irritation or something like that. But it's not removed. So what he's saying here is that when he was an unenlightened uh, bodhisattva, he had ill will. So it is either to be construed that it was at the time when he was um, only a stream enterer. It is often said in the life stories of the Buddha that he went through the whole enlightenment phase while sitting under the Bodhi tree in that life when he became a Buddha, that the preceding lives had all been the practice leading up to it with a determination to get there. But that is uh, not the words of the Buddha, that is explanations. So he had ill will arising. And when he realized, then, then, and then he understood there is this thinking with ill will arisen in me. 
that leads to my own affliction, other affliction of both, obstructs insight, promotes annoyance, leads away from Nibbana. And by thinking thus, whenever ill will arose in me, I abandoned it, removed it, did away with it. It's exactly the same um, passage for ill will and for cruelty. Cruelty has the connotation of an action and not of a, of a thought. And um, <coughs> arises out of thoughts of ill will. It is usually used, the word is used as the opposite of compassion. It's the exact opposite of compassion. It's... Um, The lack of consideration for others, which is the mildest form, and it can go as far as actually wanting to hurt others. But it is also, in the beginning, the lack of consideration, where others are of no importance and not interesting. There's nobody in the world except oneself and... uh, one figures one has enough troubles, why should one worry about other people's troubles? Which also can go too far, where one doesn't uh, understand that one has to have one's own uh, development in order to be helpful. So that is the cruelty starts with that and goes as far as wanting to hurt. Now, the next paragraph is very interesting. In whatever way a person keeps thinking and pondering, that will affect the inclination of the mind accordingly. Now, if if nothing else, this is the most important sentence of that whole sutta, as far as I have so far seen it. Whatever way one thinks and ponders, that will be the inclination of the mind. So if we think and ponder along the pathways that we have heard in these discourses, pathways of purifying one's own emotions, purifying one's own thought processes, and really understanding the unsatisfactoriness of the worldly life, and pointing one's mind towards the freedom that can come from complete insight, that's where the mind will incline. And that's why I have said several times already, we get what we want. It's in the mind. The mind makes, makes itself up, one makes up one's mind, And as one makes up one's mind, that's what one does. It's impossible to do anything else. If I've made up my mind, I'm going to go to Sydney, well, obviously, I'm not going to go to Melbourne. Whatever I make up my mind to do, that's what I'll do. Now, there can be obstructions, obviously, if I make up my mind to do something and it doesn't work out there may be obstructions. Some of them may be protective and others may be karmic obstructions. Purification hasn't come about yet, so 
it hasn't happened yet, but if one keeps up making one's mind in the right direction, it will happen. There's no reason why anyone makes up their mind to do the jhanas will not do them. There's no no earthly reason why. It's quite impossible. It may take, for some people, it might take a long time. But what is a long time, short time, who knows, there is no time. Time, space is all one the same thing. So, time. But that's all. If one makes up one's mind to go to Nibbana, there's absolutely, well, that's not a nice way of saying it. I'll take that back. If one makes up one's mind to have the experience of Nibbana, because if I say to go to, you might think it's a place. Um, if you have the experience of Nibbana, well, there's no earthly reason why one shouldn't. It's a matter of time. It's a matter of determination. It's a, it's a matter of resurrecting that inclination. This is where the mind inclines to. Now, some people, and I have, you know, seen this happen, are perfectly convinced there's nothing else to be done except achieve, achieve the experience of Nibbana. But even subconsciously, there's always that layer of, yeah, but not for me. I couldn't possibly. And it may not even be conscious, it may be subconscious. So often it's even conscious. I mean, they might even say it. But even then, when it's just underlying that, yeah, but not for me, I couldn't. Well, of course then one couldn't. If I think I couldn't, I couldn't. There's no way that I could then. Nobody's going to make me do it. Nobody's going to come around and, and, and say, well, in spite of that you think you couldn't, you could. Either I could or I couldn't. It's all in one's own mind. Our own mind is discursive, full of ill will, as it says here, of uh, sensual desires, and it's equally full of all the right intentions, and equally full of the Nibbanic element, all got it all in there. So this sentence one should remember. In whatever way a person keeps thinking and pondering, that will affect the inclination of the mind accordingly. Now thinking is one thing and pondering is another. And the word pondering is not a bad word in English. It's trying to understand what one is thinking, trying to make connections. The more intelligent the mind is, the easier it makes the connections. The connections between that which it hears, reads, thinks, and that which is the base of existence. That's what is really within all that, what one hears, what one reads, what one thinks, 
has all out arisen out of that base of existence. Otherwise it wouldn't be possible. It's all come from there. And that connection, so the more intelligent the mind is, the easier it makes the connection. And because of that, pondering is trying to understand what am I thinking here? What is it? How does it fit into my way to Nibbana, if that's what I've made up my mind to, go, to do? Now, if a person keeps thinking with sensual desire and pondering with sensual desire, now pondering is of course even worse than thinking about it, because first if one thinks with sensual desire and then starts pondering it, that means that, oops, that one now has, is thinking about how the sensual desire, if it was gratified, how that would then have had the desired result <coughs> and what wonderful experience one could get from the gratification of it, that's the pondering of it. Pondering the sensual desire, seeing the connection of the desire with the gratification and the wonderful results which one gets. Now, in pondering, if one keeps one then one has abandoned thinking with renunciation in order to cultivate thinking with sensual desire. And then the mind is inclined to thinking with sensual desire. So one can't do both. One is either doing this or that. Now obviously one, uh, an unenlightened person sways from this side to that side. But if we react to the unprofitable kind of thinking with this sensible approach which the Buddha is um, explaining here we have a very good chance to keep the mind inclined in the right direction now the word inclined is excellent it's like an incline it's going to go there eventually it's going to sort of um, just um, slide there because it's an incline but if we incline it towards sensual desire well obviously it's going to slide there the same goes for ill will if one keeps thinking with ill will and pondering with ill will one has abandoned thinking with loving kindness in order to cultivate thinking with ill will and then the mind is inclined to thinking with ill will. And the same goes for cruelty. If one keeps thinking with cruelty and pondering with cruelty, one has abandoned thinking with compassion in order to cultivate the thinking with the cruelty, and then the mind is inclined to thinking like that. Now, if we, for instance, have thoughts, thoughts of ill will and then ponder about it, how we can get even with that person or how badly we've been treated how sorry we should be for ourselves or um, how we're going to show them that we're not like that but we're different I mean the whole thing just becomes a complete merry-go-round of unprofitable thoughts instead of saying okay that's ill will that's not that's not for my own good, that's not for anybody else's good, that takes me away from Nibbana, let's think the opposite. Now this is exactly this substitution process that I've been talking about, but 
with more emphasis behind it, and uh, which makes it easier. Now, if I have thoughts of ill will, and I know I should substitute these thoughts of ill will with, with loving kindness, well, that's all very well, but maybe I can't do it. So there is this in-between endeavor, which says quite clearly, well, this isn't going to be any good, what I'm doing here. It's not going to be good for me. It's not going to be good for anybody else. It's certainly taking me in the wrong direction, so let me get rid of it. And then one can start thinking in the right direction. So it's a very um, interesting experience to hear how the Buddha himself did it. This is what he's telling his monks so that they can also do it. I mean, they weren't at that time all uh, enlightened, so he's trying to tell them how to do it. Just as in the last month of the rains in the autumn season, when the crops thicken, a herdsman would guard his cows constantly, tapping and poking them on this side and that with a stick to check and curb them. Why that? Because he foresees imprisonment or loss or blame that could befall him if he let them stray into the crops. So too I foresaw in unprofitable mind moments a danger of degradation and defilement and in profitable mind moments a blessing in renunciation which blessing is on the side of purification. So again he's using a simile which is um, common to the people he's talking to because it was a completely agricultural society that they were living in. So he's talking about a herdsman who's guarding the cows constantly so that none of them would get lost because he's going to get imprisoned or blamed or lose his job uh, when if that should happen. So in the same way, he himself, the Bodhisattva, foresaw danger of de- being degraded and defiled by such thoughts and a thought blessing if the thoughts were renouncing renunciation and a blessing because of purification. So if we can tell ourselves every time a, one of those nasties appear in the mind that we can tell ourselves that we are only defiling ourselves and the opposite will be a blessing. Surely that should make an impact on us. It doesn't guarantee that it will never arise again, but the arisen one will be abandoned. And the more often we do that, the easier it is to stay on that, uh, on the profitable. Having abandoned it often, many times, it's much easier. Uh, Two other uh, benefits come about. One is that one has an enormous lot of self-confidence because one knows one can direct the mind the way one wants it to be. Even though something unprofitable may have arisen like ill will, anger, hate, whatever, one knows exactly one can get rid of it. One doesn't have to do anything with it. It's a great feeling of relief. And... uh, Because of that self-confidence, it becomes easier and easier to do it. But if one allows oneself 
to be a victim of one's own unprofitable thoughts, one should, he doesn't say that here, the Buddha, but I'm going to say that, one should call oneself a fool. He doesn't go that far. I don't think so anyway. We'll see. Maybe he does. I don't know. One should see the defilement and one should see the, the blessing. One should see the degradation. One, one's degrading oneself with such thoughts. One should think of oneself as a nice, spiritual, meditative person. There such thoughts are in the mind. <laughs> as I dwelt thus, diligent, ardent, and self-controlled, Thinking with renunciation arose in me. I understood thus. There is this thinking with renunciation arisen. And that does not lead to my own affliction or to others' affliction or to the affliction of both. It aids, it aids insight, does not promote annoyance, and it leads to Nibbana. If I think with that and ponder with that, even for a night, even for a day, even for a night and day, I foresee nothing to fear from it. Only that with the continuous thinking and pondering I might tire my body, and a tired body annoys the mind, and an annoyed mind is far from concentration. Accordingly, I settled mind in myself, quietened it, brought it to singleness and concentrated it. Why is that? so that my mind should not be harried, harried, annoyed. It's very interesting. The Buddha is telling how he practiced. It's uh, one of the uh, few suttas where he actually talks about exactly the way that he came to it, to enlightenment. There are others which are far more general. This is one of the few which is in detail. So what he's saying is, all right, so now I was thinking with renunciation, giving up sensual desire, letting go of it, renouncing sense pleasures. And I realized that they were now uh, not to my own affliction, that they did not degrade me, these things, but that it was leading to Nibbana. But, and I could see that if I thought like that, there was nothing to fear. But still, with continuous thinking and pondering, I'm tiring my body, and a tired body annoys the mind, and an annoyed mind can't concentrate. So because of that, I settled the mind, I quietened it, I brought it to single-pointedness and concentrated it. And why is that? So that the mind should be not annoyed. So, it's all very well to think good thoughts, but there's also a limit to that. Because thinking, 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 thinking is the most tiring thing that one could possibly do. In fact, I think it's more tiring than anything else that one could um, imagine. It's um, an activity which, even on a profitable thought pattern, does not event, no, does not bring energy to the mind, but it uses it up. The only thing that brings energy to the mind 
are the med- meditative absorptions. So, after having thought a few good thoughts, one can then much easier concentrate, of course. So, one should alternate with the attention to the thought, the uh, content of the mind. So if we have attention to the content of the mind and keep it on the profitable base, then the alternate way is to quieten the mind and have the meditation. Obviously, the Buddha does not say meditating all night and all day, but he also says you can't think all night and all day. It's just impossible. The mind just goes berserk. Doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, as I dwell thus, diligent, ardent and self-controlled, thinking with loving kindness arose in me and exactly the same thing. Realized that this was for his own good, for other people's good, promoted insight and um, was leading to Nibbana, but yet there was still the, um, if it was continuous, it would tire, and tire the body and tire the mind, and so he started meditating. And the same about the compassion. And there is the same sentence once more, and it says, in whatever way a big uh, person keeps thinking and pondering, that will affect the inclination of the mind accordingly. If one keeps thinking with renunciation and pondering with that, one has abandoned thinking with sensual desire in order to cultivate thinking with renunciation, and then the mind's inclined to that. If one keeps thinking with loving kindness, then the mind's inclined to that. And if one keeps thinking with compassion, then the mind's inclined to that. And I give the simile again. Just as in the last month of the heat, when all the crops have been brought inside the villages, a herdsman would guard his cows while staying at the root of a tree out in the open since he needs only to be mindful that the cows are there, so too there was need for me only to be mindful that those mental states were there. In other words, he didn't have to poke around and, and uh, keep those mind states going all the time. He just had to be sure that the good mind states, the profitable ones, were there. And then he could start meditating. And then other times he would have to see that they were there again. Tireless energy was aroused in me, as happens in one who abides diligent, ardent, and self-controlled. Now this is, again, another way of explaining that energy is aroused if one makes effort. Now, very interesting. We always have the opposite idea. We always have the idea that we get new energy if we do nothing. It's just the other, other way around. The more we do nothing, the less energy we have. If one is diligent, ardent, and self-controlled, that's when energy comes. Now he's going to give a very... Um, uh, elaborate simile. Suppose that in a wooded range 
there was a great low-lying marsh near which a big herd of deer lived, and then a man appeared seeking what was not their good, their welfare, their surcease of bondage, and he closed the safe and good path that led to their happiness and opened a false path, and he put out a decoy and set up a dummy so that later on the big herd of deer might come to loss, ruin, and calamity. But suppose some man came, seeking their good, their welfare, their surcease of bondage, and he reopened the safe and good path that led to their happiness and closed the false path, and he hurried, and he hurried, 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 hurried away the decoy and destroyed the dummy, so that later on the big herd of deer might come to growth, increase, and fulfillment. I have given you this simile in order to intimate a meaning. Now a meaning here is this. The great low-lying marsh stands for sensual desire. For sensual desire is like a, like a muddy place, like a marsh into which one can uh, uh, sink into. The big herd of deer stands for beings. Well, people, for us. The man who sought what was not their good, their happiness, and their surcease of bondage stands for Mara, the evil one. Now, Mara, the evil one, is the same as what we have in the Western world, the devil with, uh, you know, fire coming out of his nostrils and uh, a clump foot and a tail and all the rest of it. And uh, he, uh, in his this horrible guise, leads one into bad ways and then of course it's not one's own fault it's the devil I mean he's been around and he's done all these terrible things so now here we have the same thing with Mara but it's not to be understood like that Mara is a temptation sitting in here if there's no Mara in here there's no way anything can happen so as long as we have uh, not full enlightenment there is Mara there is temptation so um, the um, so the man who sought what was not their good, their happiness, their thirsties of bondage, stands for the temptation that we have. Even when the Buddha was sitting, was still the unenlightened Bodhisattva, but was sitting under the Bodhi tree in what today is Bodhaya, and had made up his mind he wasn't going to get up, even if the flesh would rot from the bones before he had found enlightenment. At that time which was just just prior to his enlightenment, the story says that Mara appeared and brought his three most beautiful daughters and they're called Lopadosamoa, which is greed, hate and delusion. And they are the most beautiful women in the world. And they came to the Buddha, to the Bodhisattva and said, what are you sitting there, black-haired youth in the prime of life? He was 35 at the time and why don't you come and play with us and we'll make you happy what are you sitting there for and uh, he told them to go away and then they came back and they made themselves look a little older because they thought maybe he didn't like them so very young and uh, then they tried again and again he shooed them away and they came a third time and they, again he shooed them away they had made themselves look a little different a little older again and, uh, and again he said go away and uh, then they came back to their father, Mara, and said, we lost this one. And uh, 
Mara got furious and uh, the story says that she, uh, with this fury which she had, he um, uh, was like an explosion and he was exploded into bits and pieces. But of course, he got back together again because he's always available. So the story actually uh, tells just one thing, that even at the moment before enlightenment there's still temptation. And this one tells about sexual temptation, which is the strongest one, of course. And uh, that is uh, that was at that time, even before enlightenment. So here, this is this uh, this man that puts all the um, difficulties before this uh, herd of deer. That's the that's uh, the temptation. The false path stands for the wrong eightfold path. That is to say wrong view, wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, and wrong concentration. That's interesting because people sometimes ask when they get interested in this, what is wrong mindfulness? Well, wrong mindfulness, of course, no mindfulness. Um, Somebody once had the idea that it would be being mindful on the wrong things but how can we be mindful on the wrong things? Because the minute we are mindful, it wouldn't be we wouldn't have them continue. So wrong mindfulness uh, has to be that, and wrong concentration uh, got to be non no concentration. But it is the opposite of right, because the noble eightfold path is called the right, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So in order to put it the opposite, it says wrong, but it would have been better if it would have been translated like that. Wrong views, of course, in order, wrong intention is in order, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, all those are right. The wrong effort could still be construed to be possible. We make efforts in order to become a millionaire instead of making effort to become enlightened. Well, that's wrong effort. But wrong mindfulness and wrong concentration are a little hard to imagine. And the decoy, the decoy which this this Mara has put up, stands for delight and lust. Now lust again, of course, does denote the sexual desire. And the decoy is that one thinks of it as a delightful uh, sensation. And the dummy stands for ignorance, of course. A very um, uh, natural way of thinking of that. And then, but the man seeking their good, their happiness, and their surcease of bondage stands for the Tathagata, Arahant and fully enlightened. The safe and good path that led to their happiness stands for the noble eightfold path. That is to say, right view, right intention, well, I've just said that same thing over again. So, what is the difficulty? The difficulty is the temptation in our own heart. There is no other. The whole thing boils down to that. That's what's happening. There's a temptation in our own heart that stands right in the middle of this. Mara, the evil one. And there is no outside there. So, because the safe and good path that leads to happiness has been reopened by me. The wrong path has been closed. 
the decoy hurried away and the dummy destroyed. And what should be done for his disciples out of compassion by a master who seeks their welfare and has compassion for them, that I have done for you. There are these roots of trees, these empty huts down there. Develop meditation because do not delay lest you later regret it. This is our message to you. This is what the Blessed One said, and the bhikkhus were satisfied and were delighted in the Blessed One's words. Now, it might be helpful also to recall another instruction of the Buddha in this connection, which is concerned with thinking. The thinking which arises either in meditation or destroys the meditation and concerns all discursive thinking or the wrong kind of thinking which he's talking about here which arises in daily life and also destroys meditation if we let it if we allow it to keep going especially if we start pondering on it and he gave five similes of what to do with this kind of thinking either with the um, for the meditation or outside in daily life five ways of removing distracting thoughts now in the first instance that concerns the meditation but in daily life it can also happen just like that just like what the Buddha is talking about here and the first way he said he gives a simile of a carpenter who had put a plug of wood in a hole simply removes this plug that he's put in the hole and substitutes with one that fits much better. Now that's the gentlest way of doing it, the first way. Namely, the substitution. If we have a distracting thought in, in during the meditation or when we start, we substitute with attention on the meditation subject. We gently push this plug out, we gently push this thought out and put the one in that we want. And the same with in daily life. If there is um, negative thought, we substitute. It's a gentle way of doing it. And if it doesn't, the substitution doesn't work, then the next thing is, and these are some that apply to this, what is said in this sutta. The next thing is, the simile he gives is, a young man and a young woman are getting ready to go out and they dress up in their best finery. And as they come outside, all dressed up, they realize that they are each one carrying the carcass of a dead animal around their necks, which is soiling all their nice clothing and looks horrible. So they quickly run back inside and take that off, clean themselves up 
and uh, redress himself and go again. So if we have a thought which is unworthy of ourselves, just like this mess that one would have around one's clothing if one had the dead carcass of an animal around one, we quickly remove it out of shame. We don't want to be seen outside with soiled clothing and a dead animal around our necks. Now, the same thing is we don't want to uh, even be alive for a moment with such an unsuitable, unworthy thought, which is a negative thinking. Well, again, in the meditation, it's also unworthy to think instead of to meditate. It's not the right thing to do, is it? So, shame can arise. And shame and fear are, are by the Buddha, um, considered to be the guardians of the world. If we are not ashamed to do the wrong thing, and are not afraid to do the wrong thing, we would have what has happened many times, even in, in this uh, lifetime, uh, anarchy, or complete, um, a complete uh, um, situation in a country where total injustice and no regard for human rights, if there's no shame and no fear. And each one of us carries that in within. We are ashamed to be seen um, dirtily dressed or um, furiously angry. We don't like to do that. We don't like to be like that. So equally we should be ashamed to have unworthy thoughts or distracting thoughts. Hiriotapa, shame and fear, the guardians of the world. And quite rightly so, the fear of wrongdoing. That's that particular one is that. So that's the second, um, that's a little stronger already. This one is little stronger than just substituting. That's being ashamed to be like this. And the third one concerns is the, the simile given is that one walks along the street and there is an acquaintance on the other side of the street. But one doesn't really want to have anything to do with that person. So one, one walks continues walking on one's own side of the street and pretends one hasn't seen that person and just keeps on walking. Now, that means that if we have a thought which has no place in the pre present um, context, <coughs> such as in meditation, no thought has any place. In daily life, Negativities, ill will, sensual desire have no place. We just keep on going without paying attention to it. Now this is what uh, the Buddha mentions here too, that if we start thinking and pondering along those lines, obviously that's going to be within us. But if we immediately know this is useless, there's no profit in this and keep on going along the way either with the meditation attention on the meditation or 
attention on what we're physically doing in daily life, then that thought cannot get a hold of us. So it's quite a strong willpower is needed to do that. And it's quite um, it's, uh, similes which are descriptive of what the Buddha is saying here in the Sutta that one realizes there's no profit in this. It's for one's own um, affliction and the affliction of others. Now the fourth one similarly given is that if a thought arises which is either in the meditation disturbing, distracting or negative in daily life the simile given is like this a person is running and after having run a a while feels very uncomfortable so says what am I running for why don't I just walk and then walks and then still feels quite that it's quite tiring and then stands still and as the person stands still again feels tired says why don't I sit down and sits down and then sitting still feels tired from that and lies down and at last feels quite at ease recognizing the fact that the negative thought brings uh, as the Buddha says here a harried mind and um, and a heavy body and un, um, a tired, tired body one feels tired it's very interesting actually if one has a lot of hateful thoughts one gets very tired in fact some people get so tired that they can't do anything anymore and of course then they blame somebody whoever it is that they were hating hating the, uh, so the tiredness is depicted in these different ways of running and walking, standing, sitting and then lying down and it affects the mind, obviously and gently changing that recognizing the fact that it's a negative thought so one gently changes it gently, little less, little less, little less until one feels totally at ease again now that's in daily life the same as in the meditation if there's a lot of thought processes, one has a look at them and gently removes little by little until the mind is totally at ease again. Well, these are four ways, four different ways of uh, dealing with one's unruly mind. And then there's a fifth one, which is um, um, quite a strong one, and so to say a last resort. If nothing has helped, none of these ways have helped. One has tried the first one, it hasn't helped. Second one, third one, fourth one, nothing has helped. Then one should be like a big strong man getting a hold of a tiny and small and puny man and drowning him. In other words, forcefully getting rid of the thought by suppressing it. And it's a very last resort. The suppressing of the thought, of course, then needs a very strong willpower. But nothing is um, gained by keeping the thought. And this strong, strong willpower, some people are not able to arouse it. They allow themselves to just wallow in thought. 
self-indulgence, no self-discipline. If we wallow in our thought processes, self-indulgence, that's all it is. We know it's not useful. I mean, as as long as we don't know anything, we we can't do anything about it. But as soon as we know that it's not useful, then self-discipline comes into the act. And here the Buddha talks about self-discipline. He says, um, self-controlled. As I dwelt thus, diligent, ardent, and self-controlled. So here, the fifth one is the last possibility of getting rid of the thought. It's not very um, satisfactory because it doesn't really bring insight. It's just a matter of not wasting one's meditation time which is satisfactory at the time, but it doesn't bring the insight how to deal with one's thought. One has to go through the others and also through what the Buddha says here, that it leads to one's own um, harm. It's harmful and it's um, harmful for others and it leads one away from Nibbana. All these uh, are insights, um, methods of understanding what goes on but this last one, at least, it's successful during the meditation time. In daily life, it can be hel- helpful, but it probably uh, is very short-lived. The fifth one would be something that one could use in the meditation. So that is um, five different ways of getting rid of the, the thought processes which are bothering in meditation, in life. If you have questions, this is the time to ask them. Yes. Um, it's, you started with uh, two different kinds of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems, well, I, I, think, I think I experienced another kind of thinking, which is during meditation, there aren't any actual thoughts but an understanding seems to arise. The understanding of the experience yes. or what? Yes. Like sometimes when I'm meditating, um, there haven't been any thoughts, but there's just a feeling of understanding something. So there has been some thought somewhere, but doesn't appear to be a conscious thought. Yes, well, uh, it, it can be an insight that spontaneously arises. And an, an insight that spontaneously arises is not what the Buddha is referring to here. He's referring to, actually he's not referring to meditation in this in this uh, sutta. He's referring to our thinking processes during the day. And he's referring to two kinds, profitable and unprofitable. And then... So it can be, yes, spontaneous insight certainly can arise in the meditation. And that's very good. That's what it's supposed to do. That's what one is hoping for. Oh, yeah. Um, although it's um, helpful to have to try and have wholesome thoughts all the time, um, when you're in a place like this, retreat, where you have apparently um, wholesome thoughts, um, is it is it helpful to encourage 
unwholesome thoughts so that at least you can see them and watch them go away? Not at all. Not even an exercise in banishing them. No, not at all. It is compared to, to taking a knife and cutting your finger just to see how much pain you can endure and uh, then cutting into your arm and then cutting into your leg and then cutting into your tummy and seeing oh, how much can I handle and then getting more and more upset by that I was just wondering whether uh, one could forget um, just how unwholesome thoughts are out there in the world <laughs> I don't think you can forget that quickly uh, I think you will remember that the unwholesome thoughts um, are easily uh, available the um, no what you can do if you want to exercise the mind in that way is you can conjure up the situations that have in the past triggered unwholesome thought and see how you can handle it with wholesome thinking the same situation how you can induce yourself to think wholesomely. Real situations, situations that actually happened in the past. Yes, yes. Where you have definitely remembered thinking unwholesomely or reacting unwholesomely or whatever and then seeing, well, how could I do it wholesomely in that case? You see, there is a possibility of never, ever thinking again an unwholesome thought. An arahant doesn't. So that's what one, since that is the aim, since the mind's been climbing in that direction, we don't want to encourage anything that's in the other direction. But you can do that, what I have just said. But I'm not so sure that that even is necessary. The more the mind is purified through the meditative absorptions and through the endeavor to keep it on the, the, um, on the line of wholesome thinking, the less it's inclined to go the other way. And if it's always being pulled back again and again, it eventually doesn't do it. Well, so briefly, it makes no difference. Aran doesn't, doesn't think I'm wholesome. Well, I guess, having done that for so long, when you, when you do have an unwholesome thought, it really stands out. back out into the world and start uh, feeling anger at something when it, by comparison to what you have been feeling it's very vivid yes, oh I, I see I think what you're uh, actually saying is that in the past uh, you weren't really aware of the fact that it was so unwholesome mm. Mm. Oh, well you will be <laughs> because you see meanwhile you've also uh, heard about watching your thoughts and becoming aware of them and then you'll know, you know. Yes. Yes. Um, Buddha talks about um, about um, doing something with the thoughts but um, my understanding is that the thought comes from a feeling and how do we know that that feeling isn't then being suppressed and um, smoldering 
Well, it can always do, but the thought does not come from a feeling. The reactive thought comes from a feeling. The thought itself can be the first sense consciousness, and a feeling can follow it. You do not have only thoughts following on feelings. You can first start with the thought and then have the feeling. So the thought brings it about in the beginning. And um, this, this what he's talking about here, has the, none of the uh, suppression in it at all. It says of thinking differently. Just thinking differently. And the thinking itself brings a feeling, yes. But he's strictly talking only about the thinking. Is that clear? Mm. Anything else? This is a real how-to um, explanation here and should be well remembered. This is uh, one of the great problems of mentioning it over and over again to remember to actually do this because one can get very caught up in the thought process because of the fact that not only is it habitual but it is our ego support. Even the dreadful thoughts, at least we know we're there. So we're being dreadful, well, it's all right. We know other people were even more dreadful. And so it's, a, it's an ego support system. And therefore the uh, thinking process is something that is, um, needs to be watched with great care because what we think is what we are. changing one thinking one changes one's person it's a whole story of the spiritual path what we think is what we are sometimes people say what we eat is what we are but it's what we think is what we are (laughs) (laughs) so we have a real how to here how to do this how to go about letting go of all unwholesome thoughts um, by seeing how damaging they are to ourselves. Damaging also, of course, to others, but primarily to ourselves. And to others, I usually call that, that we are actually polluting the environment with our unwholesome thoughts. We think it's them because they're putting uh, uh, some uh, um, affluent into the into the uh, affluent into the streams or something like that. It's not that at all. If people had pure thoughts, that wouldn't happen. And with the purity of our own thoughts, we can help to keep our environment around us pure, not just the streams and the the. the forests or anything like that but uh, the whole atmosphere around us and the atmosphere around us is that what we live in and what everybody else lives in and it's very interesting that oneself is not aware of what kind of atmosphere one puts out 
but everybody else is. It's very, very interesting. It's impossible for oneself to know what kind of um, output there is. But other people feel it. So if we want to keep our environment in order, we've got to keep our thinking uh, on, a, on a high level. And in that environment, we ourselves feel well then. So anything else on this or anything else? If nothing else has worked, you've tried everything else and it hasn't worked, um, you sort of just have to shove it away and say, well, off with you, go. Yeah, but there's such a strong willpower to do that. Yes. Well, the, the whole pathway requires willpower. The four, four pathways to power require willpower. And they are also part of the 37 sectors of enlightenment. Willpower is part of it. Mm. A person with weak willpower can develop a strong willpower. Somebody who's got it anyway is better off, but uh, one can develop it. By constantly referring to this to see how one damages oneself. It does require willpower, but it's only a last resort. All the others are considered to be more uh, advisable, the first four, and also this way of thinking that the Buddha has explained here in the Sutta, all that is more advisable. It requires willpower, but also it requires sort of... um, it doesn't lend itself to any understanding. You just push it away and say, terrible. And having gone through the other four, the mind is prepared. See, you have tried the others, gone through them, but it didn't work. So then the mind is prepared to do that. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Imagine that you have a fountain of crystal clear water in your heart. The fountain which 
contains the source, the spring from which your being emanates. Crystal clear, pure and beautiful. And this fountain has within it all the wonderful qualities that you can imagine. Love, peace, contentment, joy, compassion, gratitude, truth, patience, and as this fountain sprays upward all these qualities, come into you, fill you, and give you a feeling being totally complete with nothing lacking. And now let the fountain grow and become larger and larger so that it can direct the love and peace and compassion to everyone here. no longer contained only within you, but going outward. let it grow ever more becoming larger and larger the fountain so that its spray can reach further afield and bring love and compassion and peacefulness to beings all around here
and make it larger yet having no boundaries this immense beautiful pure crystal clear fountain containing all the qualities that one could wish for making it so large that love and peace and compassion can reach out to beings far away all over this country all over this globe let the fountain reach sky high And as it reaches sky high, let it branch out, become so vast that its pure water of love and peace and compassion can rain down on beings everywhere. Now think of anyone whom you particularly would like to benefit by giving loving peace and compassion. Let the fountain from your heart reach out to that person's heart. filling him or her with love and peace and compassion. Now think of anyone with whom you may have been angry or disappointed. And fill that person with the fountain of your love.
think of anyone you're worried about if there is such a person or are fearful about fearful about their well-being let the fountain of your love rain down on that person filling him or her and surrounding him or her If there's anyone in the world whom you particularly reject, anyone at all, let this fountain of love and compassion from your heart reach out into the heart of that person, bringing the crystal clarity of the pure waters of the source of all being And now put your attention back on yourself. And feel the purity and the sense of well-being that come from the crystal clear waters of love and compassion arriving out of your heart at this fountain crystal clear water 
fill you, surround you, bringing a feeling of cleansing. joy of contentment And now contain that fountain of crystal clear water, pure, unperturbed, within your heart, so that it's always there for you.